So uh, this morning we're going to begin a series in the book of First Peter, which is in the New Testament. Uh, we looked at James uh, earlier. I guess we had a series through James, and now we're going to be going through First uh, Peter. James and Peter, obviously, were two of the apostles. Uh, Peter being sort of the, the leader of the apostles. He was uh, probably the first among equals of the twelve Due to his character and his sort of innate leadership ability, he was already leading men as a fisherman. And so when Jesus called Peter, he was in a leadership position. And then, and then Jesus continued to put the, sort of that weight on Peter as they walked together uh, in ministry. And at the end, when Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, he told Peter prior to that, that on Peter uh, and the apostles, he was going to use them. To build his church. And so this is Peter writing um, a book. He has two books, First and Second Peter, uh, to the churches. And so we're really excited about going through uh, this study of, of First Peter. We've, we've titled it, Holy Living is a Daily Thing. Holy Living is a Daily Thing. It was cool. Had a conversation this week about, about this very thing. And um, just talking to uh, a young person who is a young lawyer and trying to balance being a lawyer and being a believer, uh, being a lawyer and someone who wants to honor Christ. And it's, that actually can be harder than it, it might seem. There's a lot of pressure uh, to be a certain way and to act a certain way and to do certain things, especially to be career driven. And so it's a natural struggle. We all face that struggle in our careers, but um, this, this person is, is having a particularly difficult time and getting, I think, some bad advice. But uh, I, you know, we try to just, let's hold that at the light of Scripture and, and see if it, it matches up. But in, in that discussion, we're talking about just this idea of following Christ and turning thing over, everything over to Jesus and, and allowing Him to work. And I think I said something that might have been unique, I, I, and I didn't think I was saying anything. I said, you know, it's, it's a daily thing. I have to get up every morning and ask the Lord to help me do it today. Uh, whether it's to be a husband or a dad or a friend or to be a, a lawyer uh, and, and to have a career that's honored to him, to honor my partners, to honor the people that work for me. That is a daily thing because you can get so quickly, we, we, we move back over to, to what the world wants and what the world tells us is the right thing to do. And if it's not something that we just give to God every day, uh, it's, it becomes a challenge. I, I love, you know, the psalmist said, your mercies are new every morning. The reason your mercy, you guys remember what mercy is. Mercy is, is forgiving someone or giving someone something they, that, that they've, they've sort of earned this punishment. To have mercy means that I'm releasing you from that punishment. If that's new every morning, I must be being released from something. So what the writer is saying is that every morning I have to come to you and say, God, help me do this again today. Uh, and forgive me for what I did yesterday that, that wasn't in your plan. Um, and so holy living is a daily thing. And as we walk through Peter, I think we'll, we'll see that. Um, I think Peter too, First Peter especially, can be kind of a Christianity 101. Um, what does it look like to live the Christian life? And if, if you are, are discipling someone or if you're in a discipling relationship or you know someone as a, who is a new believer, First Peter is a really, really good tool to use. One thing, it's short. And so in our culture of... Uh, t- uh, attention spans. First uh, Peter uh, is a lot shorter than Romans, and so First Peter is a really good tool to just show someone. Okay, here's what it looks like. Here's what Christianity, true Christianity, looks like. So we're going to look at that this morning. Let's just read. We're going to be verses one through twelve this morning. So let's just read those together, 
uh, and then we'll jump into it. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled and beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And, through your faith, and though your faith is more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news, this gospel, has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. A lot of verses, a lot of verses. What's interesting about the way Peter starts this letter is he's telling the Christians that he's writing to who they are. He's telling them who they are. Why, why in the world is Peter telling these Christians what they are and who they are and what they're doing? This is really interesting. It's a really interesting literary technique. I think we use this technique some, especially in our culture with girls um, and having a daughter. I'm, I'm keenly aware of this, of continually telling her who she is in Christ so she doesn't forget that because the world will tell her that she's something else. Um, and I, obviously it... It, you have to do it with sons too, but particularly in our culture for daughters, it's a big deal. Um, and I, it, it, it struck me that Peter is doing this because he, he's wanting to remind them of what they've done and who they are and whose they are, but at the same time, he's sort of setting a benchmark for who they are and what they've done. He, he says, you're holy and cleansed. He says, you're living with expectation and hope. He says you're heirs to a priceless inheritance. He says you're protected by God. And he says you're glad and joyful even in trials. So this is this reminder of who you are in Christ. But he's also, I think, 
and we'll look at this this morning, is that he's setting a benchmark for what true Christianity looks like. Um, those of you who've been around me a little bit, I, I like to use this phrase, swim upstream. I've talked about this before. Uh, Wade and I have talked about this. Wade is a trained lifeguard and, and swim coach, et cetera, et cetera. My kids have been on the swim team. Um, swimming upstream is, I think, it's, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's a good analogy for, for what we're talking about here. Because swimming upstream means we're swimming against the current. So if you're swimming in a pool, you're not swimming upstream because there's no current unless there's an artificial current created. You've got those swim pools now. Michael Phelps, I think, advertises one where it, it, it has jets and you can actually swim against the jets and you can make those harder or softer depending on your swimming ability. But to swim upstream means the current's coming this way and I'm swimming against it. And so I have to be a much stronger swimmer to swim against the current than I would have to be swimming in a pool. Same thing you know, swimming in the ocean. If I'm swimming against the waves or against the tide coming in, I have to be a much stronger swimmer than I have to be to swim with the current. Uh, and so that's why all the training is required and all these things are, are put in place to, to learn how to do this. But we as people living in the world, we are swimming in a culture of godlessness. We are in a river and there's a stream going in this direction and it's godless. And it's really easy to get on our inner tube and float down that river of godlessness and humanism. And humanism just simply means I worship myself. I worship the human for all the human is, and I don't worship God. Other words that we use are hedonism. Hedonism is just the pursuit of pleasure. So you've got this whole current of I don't need God, I don't want God, I don't like God, I want myself, I need myself, I rely on myself, I glorify myself, and that current is going in that direction. Swimming upstream, we have to, we have to swim against that current if we're believers, but we also have to swim in a way that's going to be successful. There are all kinds of techniques in swimming that you can use that aren't going to work. Okay, if you want to see an example of techniques that don't work when you're swimming, come out this summer and watch my son on the swim team at Edenwood. He loves it, loves it. But I'm telling you, there's no technique involved there that is helping him swim. I have never laughed so hard in my life. We, we were, and if the, for those of you who know that Will, Will doesn't care. He absolutely does not care. He's having a blast. And so, but I look, we were, we were working a meet and Jenny and I were lane judges at the one meet. And so she was down about three lanes and Will was doing the backstroke in her lane. And so I'm watching my lane and I finally, I kind of, I knew Will was in the lane. So I'm, I'm glancing over occasionally and I look over and I see Jenny and she is down like this and she is crying. She's laughing so hard at Will because he keeps bumping into the lane lines and he's just, la, la, la. Bumping into the lane lines, he's bumping into the wall at the end, and he's turning around, and then he gets out, he's out of the pool, he's like, yeah, okay, yes, Will, good job. But he's learning, he's, a new, he's, a, he's new to competition swimming, he's a very strong swimmer, but he's new to competition swimming and all these different strokes, or something he has to learn, he has to practice it and work on it and watch people who are doing it correctly. Of course, you know, Ellie, Miss Superstar, she jumps in the water and does an immediately perfect butterfly, and then she's, you know, winning the races. And so that's, that's kind of a different deal, too. Uh, so we have to keep her humble, and then we have to, we have to encourage, we have to encourage Will. But, 
But what God's word does is it teaches us how to swim upstream properly and how to use the proper strokes. And these are the strokes of Christ. These are the things that keep us from being swept down river and over the waterfall of destruction that's waiting for us uh, at the end. Um, If you look at verse 5, God, it says, Peter's just reminding you that God through the Holy Spirit is providing the strength and protection we need for this task. We are protected by the Lord. He's, he's always standing on the shore. He's there. He's, he's there at all times. And then he's providing the strength that we need and the protection that we need to be able uh, to swim upstream and to do this task. What I think Peter's doing here, just to tie a bow in it, Peter is also standing on the shore. And this happens, you know, in river swimming. And, and, and there's all kinds of applications for this. But what he's doing is when you get to a certain, when we get to this sort of a certain point in the, the stream, he plants this flag and says, okay, here's where you are. Here's where you are. And you're stroking. And I can look over to the shore and I can see that flag. And it's my mark. If I ever look over and I don't see that flag anymore, and oh, wait a minute, that flag's up there. I've got to get back to the flag. Because if I'm not, that tells me I'm going downstream. I am moving in the wrong direction. And I've got to basically get back to this flag. And that's what Peter, uh, I believe, is doing here. He's giving us something to fight back uh, towards. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just talk about this thing that we're fighting back towards, that we're fighting against this current of godliness and our own nature so that we, what we have is true Christianity uh, that God intended and not what we want or what we perceive true Christianity to be. So let, look, what we're going to do this morning, it's 12 verses. We're not going to cover 12 verses. We're going we're gonna to do verses 8 and 9 because I believe that all those verses are kind of tied up in what's talked about in 8 and 9. So let's, let's look back again at, at 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. You love him even though you have never seen him, and though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So in verses 8 and 9, as Peter is reminding his readers who they are and what Christians are, he, he tells them that there are five things. He says, they love Christ, they believe in Christ, they rejoice in Christ, and through all of this, they are receiving the salvation of their souls, and they're doing this even though they have never seen Christ in person. This is actually a little bit harder for his readers, right? Because Peter's seen Christ in person. And so it's a, it feels like a little bit easier for Peter to say, hey, uh, but you've seen him, bro. I get that. But what Peter's doing is basically saying, look, what y'all are doing is actually greater than my faith. I don't have to have as much faith. I saw him walk on water. I saw him heal the sick. I saw him calm the storm. I saw him rise from the dead. I saw him ascend in glory. My, my belief is seeing. I've seen, therefore I believe. You guys haven't even seen him. And you believe him. And you trust him. Peter here is basically telling them, hey, your faith is stronger than mine. That's pretty cool. That seems to be counterintuitive. We would think, wait a minute. It should be easier or it should be, 
We should have more of a perspective if I've seen Jesus. If I'm Peter, I should have more of a perspective of who Jesus is than someone who hasn't seen him. Well, look, in a minute, I actually think that's not true. So hold on to that for a second. So what Peter's saying here, so let's boil it down even further. What Peter's saying here is true Christianity means loving Christ, trusting Christ, rejoicing in Christ. Loving Christ, trusting Christ, very different than loving, and then rejoicing in Christ, which is different from loving and trusting. That sounds pretty simple. But, but what do these things actually mean? How do we sort of put the practicality to these concepts of love and trust and joy or rejoicing? Loving Christ means having a deep affection for Christ, for who he is. Just for who he is. We talked about that this morning in our songs. It doesn't matter what he's done or hasn't done. He is God. He's the creator. He made us, perfected us in himself. If there's nothing else to add to that, we should love him. So we love him for who he is. And then we love him for what he's done. So, so not just who he is, what he's done. He purchased our salvation through his blood, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Bought it for us, something we could never buy, something we could never earn, something we could never pay back. He did for us. So we use this concept of love. We got Valentine's Day coming up, guys. Guys, Valentine's Day. Okay, it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Tick, tick. Okay. We, we throw this concept of love around. Right? It's overused in our culture. I love this. I love that. I do not think it means what you think it means. It, it doesn't mean what we think it means. Love, the kind that we're talking about here, is this deep abiding affection for one who means that much to me for who he is first and then for what he's done. Everything else is just like. And I think we'll find that most people who claim the name of Christ like the idea of Jesus. I like Jesus. It's a great first step. It's a great first step. It, it, it is terrific. It gets you no further away from hell than any of the other steps. Liking Jesus. Oh, he's a great teacher. Uh, he, he said some good stuff. I really like that. Even one of my favorite quotes is Gandhi said, yeah, I like Jesus. I just don't like his followers. Right, there's, a, there's an indictment. Um, but we, we'll find, I think, and, and sometimes we have to examine our own hearts. Do we just like Jesus a lot? Or do we just like the idea of Jesus a lot? Or do we just like some of the things he wrote and we think that's a good way to live? Or that's a good way to be? I've had so many people tell me that over the years. Well, that's fine. That's a good way to be. Well, no, it's, it's the way to be. But sort of crossing over from this idea of do I like it or do I love him? Very different discussion. Well, what about trusting him? Trusting Christ means having faith. So this word faith that gets bandied around. Faith in his promises and his counsel because they're both without error. 
He's a keeper of promises, and his wisdom is tried, true, and unassailable. He has infinite wisdom. The word, the the big churchy word we use is omniscient. He knows all. His wisdom is infinite. And his promises are true, and they have never failed. So, I don't just love this Christ because of who he is and what he's done. I trust him. I have faith because his promises are true and because his wisdom is unassailable. So love adores Christ for who he is and trust and faith are confident in Christ for what he will do. Peter talks in here about this expectation that his readers have. You are living with great expectation. You are living with this faith that God will finish the task that he started in you on that day. There's a great hymn that I love, and the, the words are, I know who I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able. And it also comes from a verse that Paul wrote, to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's some archaic language. But what he's saying is, I'm, I know that Christ, and I've, I trust in him. I know that I've believed in him, and I'm trusting him to do what he said he would do. Love, trust. Can you love someone without trusting them, ladies? Anybody? Can you love someone without trusting them? Yes, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. David. You can love someone without trusting them. Okay, that's per- perfectly possible. You, uh, you may have had people in your life that you love them, but you can't trust them. Okay, Jesus is not that person. You can love and trust him. Charles Spurgeon, you might know who he is, uh, said, Faith goes up the stairs that love has built, and it looks out the window that hope has opened. I love that word picture. So love builds stairs that I can climb and I can get to the window and see the light and have the hope of what's coming. I can see out across the valley and into the horizon and see the light is coming. Love builds those stairs. I have to love him first and then I trust him. I have to trust those stairs that got built by love they're not going to fall. And when I get to the top, I can look out the window and see the horizon. It's a terrific word picture. But that's what Christianity is. True Christians love Christ. They trust. Contrary to popular belief, this does not lead to boredom and dull living. All right? It doesn't. The Christian life is very different. And in my mind, completely the opposite of boring and dull. It'll put you in some spots where you will never believe you could have been in. And then you get to watch God work and do stuff you could have never done on your own. Ever done on your own. So we've got love and then we've got faith. But there's one more. There's rejoicing. That doesn't sound like boredom. I'm happy and rejoicing. I'm not bored. I'm not dull. I'm excited. I'm happy. 
this is where the message takes a strange turn for those of you that know me. Because I'm, I'm Spock, man. I'm, I'm Mr. Rational, Mr. Logic, Mr. In Order. I'm not, I'm not a feelings guy. But this is where the feelings come in. Look, rejoicing in Christ means expressing joy and good feelings that come from loving him and trusting him. Like good feelings? I mean, is this a hippie church? That's not something we talk about very often. And I think one of the things that becomes unattractive about Christianity to the world is we make it seem like we're strung to a rack and somebody keeps tightening the screws every week as we become more and more like Christ. Oh, they tightened it again. I'm more like Jesus today. It really hurts. That's not what Peter's saying here. That's not what Christ teaches. He says, look, if you, if you love Christ and you trust Christ and the things that come along with loving Christ and trusting him completely bring great joy and rejoicing, good feelings. Joy cannot be separate from love and faith. I'm going to say that plainly, hopefully boldly, without exception. I'll argue with you all day long if you want to argue it. Love and faith are not separate from joy. If you love Christ and you trust him, you will be joyful. If you are not joyful, so let's walk it back down the logical framework for you philosophy folks. If you're not joyful, I would say that you either don't love Christ like you should or you do not trust him. Okay? It's not analogous. But to give you an example, use that with an interpersonal relationship, a marriage or someone you're dating or a sibling. If I love them and I don't trust them, my relationship with them is not joyful. It's hard. It stinks. I have to get up every day. Not If I'm in a marriage, I get up every day not trusting the person I love in the world. That's not joyful, guys. What if I get up every morning and I trust this person, but I don't love them? Is that a joyful marriage? Is that a joyful relationship? No. No. Right? They're not apart from each other. You can't separate them. You can't pull them out and say, oh, well, I love Jesus, but, man, it's just hard living this Christian life. It's just hard, man. Yeah, it's hard, but that doesn't exclude joy. It would be a contradiction to say, I love and trust Christ, but I don't feel good about it. <laughs> I mean, isn't it? That sounds silly when I say it up here, but that's what we say with our lives. We come in here and we say, I love and trust Christ, and then we go out of here and say, I don't feel good about it because I don't get to do this over here, or I don't get to take part in this over here anymore, and man, that's just not joyful. The joy is in Christ. The rejoicing, the great rejoicing, Peter says, is in Christ and who he is. The truth is, the reason that's a problem for us is because we become what we crave. Sort of you are what you eat kind of deal. You pursue the thing that brings you the most joy. So the question is, what is it for me? And what is it for you? What brings you the most joy? Your job? Your hobbies? Your relationships, sex, drugs, rock and roll, 
Your kids? Netflix? These are legitimate questions. What brings you and me the most joy? I can tell you, if you trace that line back, it's a straight line and it's linear to the thing that you pursue the most. If, it, if it's not Christ and the things of Christ, I'll just tell you point blank, you don't take the most joy in Christ. You don't love Christ. You don't trust him because it's not what you pursue. See, yeah, we were having fun until I said that. What true Christians crave, according to Peter, and if you look at the whole of Scripture, even back to the Old Testament when there is no Christ, what true Christians crave and pursue is Christ. They don't pursue what they want above Christ, ever. Why? Because he's of infinite value. I can promise you, I will promise you, there is not one thing that you are pursuing that's better than Christ. There is not one thing you can gain on this earth that is better than Christ. There is not one treasure. There is not one goal. There is not one accomplishment. There is not one fix. There is not one high. There is not one incredible, explosive, emotional moment that you will pursue on this earth that's better than Christ. He's better. Why? He's God. He's eternal. He rescued you with his own blood. And he has a place prepared for you. Peter calls it an immeasurable inheritance. I, I came up with nothing, okay? And my parents worked really, really hard to make ends meet. My dad was a poor country preacher for most of his career. And my mom worked jobs to make up for the fact that my dad was a poor country preacher for most of his career. Okay, they did enough to clothe us and to take care of us and to keep a roof over our head and keep cars running. But there was no big savings account. Heck, in those days when my dad started, there wasn't even some retirement program that the Southern Baptist Convention now has for pastors. Didn't exist. So you were either saving your own money or you were just trying to get groceries. And I can tell you, my parents were trying to get groceries. I have no inheritance. Okay, when my, when my dad passes, there's a little policy that's going to pay for his funeral. Okay? And I'm going to pay for the rest. Same thing with my mom. I'm not saying I want that. But what I'm saying is there's no inheritance for me to receive. Some of you may be waiting on big inheritances. There may be something out there for you when someone passes away that you love. But the truth is, the inheritance that I have in Christ is everything that he has. What does God have? Everything. And he says, everything that I have is yours through Christ. Even the seat at the table, even the ability to walk up to the throne of grace, just as Christ does, that's mine. That's the inheritance that he has for me. And I want to trade that for a fix. I want to trade that for a sugar high, for an endorphin rush. Yeah, we do. We trade it all the time. I do, you do, we all do. Why? Because we don't believe that what Christ has is better. And if we walk it back, it's because we don't love him and we don't trust him. We trust us. So here's where the rub comes in, and I really think this is why Peter says this out loud to his readers. 
Because he's saying, I know what you're thinking. How can I love and crave something I've never seen? How can I love and crave something I've never seen? So how do we love and trust Christ and rejoice in him when we haven't seen him? Any of you guys seen him? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, me neither. I was hoping there might be somebody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we, we haven't seen him. So how do we see him? One way that we see him is in a spiritual way. We see how he is at work. We see him with our hearts and not with our eyes. Now I'm getting squishy again. Hang with me, guys. The ladies know what I'm talking about. I see Christ with my heart and not with my eyes. Guys, dorky guys, especially Preston. Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'm making my point. I mean, this is real. This is real. There's a point in the movie where the main character has this amazing power and he doesn't know how to use it. He's over there making little, you know, blue balls. And he's supposed to be making, he can basically make anything. He's got this tremendous cosmic power. And the man that raised him in a moment where he has to use this power, the man that raised him also has this power and it's tremendous. And he says, you think I fly that arrow with my eyes, boy? I fly it with my heart. You think I see Jesus with my eyes? No, he's right here. I see him with my heart. Why? Because I see him at work. I see lives changed. I see people transformed. I see things that happen that couldn't happen by man's strength or man's ability or man's ingenuity. I see God at work with my heart. I feel him in my heart. I have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Right? My joy is not in my head. It's in our heart and our souls. And through the preaching of the gospel, through the good news, that is Jesus. He is the good news. He's part A, B, C, D, and subpart X, Y, Z. He is the gospel. Look at Romans 15, 20 through 21. This is Paul talking. My ambition has always been to preach the good news, the gospel, where the name of Christ has never been heard. Ken Katayama was talking about that last week during our elder service and crossover ministries, taking the gospel to people who are unreached. Paul's talking about this very thing here. And we, as City Church, we're trying to take the gospel to people who are unreached. Again, unless that hasn't been clear, we are not interested in trying to get people to fall out of love with their current church so they'll come over here. That's not our business model, if you want to call it that, and be really blunt about it. We're not trying to go convince somebody else that their church isn't cool anymore and our church is cooler. We're not cool. Okay? What we're trying to do is to reach people who haven't heard about Christ, or if they've heard, don't understand. And if they don't understand, we want to help them understand so they can come to this knowledge and understanding and then trust him. That's what we're trying to do. That's what Paul's talking about here. I'd rather do that than go to a church that's already been started by someone else. Isn't it funny that, that, that Paul is saying this in the first century? After Christ's death? 
I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will. It didn't say here. This is weird. He should say, those who have never been told about him will hear, and those who have never heard of him will understand. Right? He didn't say that. He says, those who've never been told will see. Oh, man, how do I see something I can't see? And then those who've never heard, they'll understand. Why? Because they can see with their heart. Because the gospel penetrates the heart so that the blind man can trust Christ. One of my favorite stories of all time, and I don't know where this originates, but it was told by a missionary uh, who was from Kenya. He was from Nairobi. He was actually royalty. He was in line for his clan. He had all the markings, uh, super cool stuff. His name was Solomon Owalabi. And Solomon tells a story about a man that, they led to, or that was led to Christ on the mission field. I don't know if Solomon did it or what it was, but there was a man, and he was deaf and dumb, and he would literally walk around with the word of God just pointing to it. Just pointing to it. Just please, please read that so you'll see. Will we be willing to do that? You'll see. Listen, you'll see if you'll just experience the gospel. Those who have never been told about it will see. The preaching of the gospel itself is a means of seeing spiritually. The receiving of the gospel is spiritual sight. It's not physical sight. And then we see Jesus in the word of God. So, I mean, even just the preaching of the gospel, we, we see him in the word of God. It's in the Bible that we hold in our hands or that we can pull up on the internet. We can see him more clearly than those who walked around him. And you think that's counterintuitive. No, it's not. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are complementary portraits of Christ inspired by God. We literally get to see everything Jesus did, said, experienced, the miracles, all of it from four different perspectives written down for us to read and get our hold on. And then you've got the witnesses after and then the witnesses after and then the writings of the apostles. And I've got this full picture of who Jesus is. The historical documentation of Jesus alone in the Bible is as great as any historical documentation we have on any figure. To say Jesus is, does not exist and it did not do what he said he did would be like me saying that Franklin Delano Roosevelt didn't exist. It's preposterous. Of course he did. Why? Because history books record it. Jesus is recorded in God's word. And look, this is the kind of seeing that is believing. This is who he was. This is what he did. This is what he taught. And it was so countercultural that it would be foolish to write it down if it weren't true. These men were in danger for their lives for writing this down, guys. They could die. They did die. This is true Christianity. This is the swimming upstream with our eyes on Christ, with our eyes on that flag that he's planted next to the river, with our heart full of love, with our lives full of faith, rejoicing in the fact that he's there. And nothing is crazier than that. Nothing is crazier than swimming upstream. And nothing's wiser. There is nothing that you can do that makes more sense, as crazy as it is, 
to swim upstream toward this Jesus. That's what true Christianity is. Alice Cooper, the wise, sage, theologian. I love this Alice Cooper quote. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll are easy. True Christianity? That's rebellion. You want to you be a rebel? We generally use that in a negative connotation. When you say someone's a rebel, you think, oh, we're wearing tattoos and singing we don't need no education. That's not what rebels are. Rebels overthrew the Roman Empire. Rebels threw tea off of a ship and said, we don't want to be taxed without representation. We'll, we'll make our own country. Thank you very much. You're sitting in these seats this morning because rebels said, no, we ain't doing it that way no more. True Christianity, Christianity that loves Christ and trusts him for who he is completely and has joy and inexpressible joy in that trust, even though times are going to be hard and even though things aren't going to go right, but they still have the joy because they love and trust Christ. That's a rebel. That's a crazy person. person is nuts. Jesus freak, man. But that is true Christianity. That is the Christianity of the Bible. That is the Christianity that is taught by Jesus and his followers. This is what we're looking at. Not this watered-down, mushy garbage that our society peddles to us as Christianity. Heck, we're even peddling it in the churches. That ain't it. Okay, it doesn't square up with this. I'm not, this is not my opinion. If you can read the entire New Testament and think that American Christianity matches up with that, then more power to you. There's nothing I can do for you. Not a thing. Jesus is the goal. Swim upstream. Let's pray.